Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. When you call out to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 12. Sometimes this is a very difficult passage to understand, even harder to quote, because it can come across as glib. When I'm in the midst of distress over my parenting skills, for example, and wonder where I've gone wrong, sobbing self-indulgently at my pity party, I think of Christ on the cross, a quick and easy image that comes to mind hard on the heels of Easter, and berate myself on a good day, shrug my shoulders and think, but does he really know on a bad one? He suffered the scourges and nailing, wondering the same thing, I bet. What have I done wrong? He had God as his father. That's a joke. Max Lucado's Bible, with its wealth of notes and stories and commentary, tells me to look beyond my day-to-day and try to see the big picture. Does this mean to offer my hardships to God's glory, surrender to his plan, let go of the wheel of my life and free fall with my Lord? What sort of plans lie behind the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the repossession of a home? Let's remember that God is the author of good. It's we who suffer from the consequences of our life choices, causing others to suffer too. Let's also remember that from the beginning, God knows what he has planned. The big picture. We don't. I'm tempted to rush ahead, fix my life for myself. Then I'm pulled back and cautioned to wait on the Lord. You see, my life isn't mine. It's the Lord's. How often do I need to be reminded of that? God weeps with us, mourns and grieves, stresses and frets, laughs and jokes. But the biggest thing he doesn't have to worry about is wondering whether we'll make it to heaven. He has that all sewn up on the cross. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNinney. My guest this week is Jane Dolby, the host mum of my dancer daughter in Leon C, who entered my life last year completely at God's bidding and offered me a cup of tea and lots, lots more. Stay and hear her story. I'll be excerpting from my book, taking you on a mild pub crawl and skipping the weather. I have a piece of Italian wedding cake this afters to go with my French press coffee, so sit down and make yourself comfy while I talk to you and perhaps inspire you a bit for the next hour. I've lost my office again for a week while my filmmaker son is here, but that's all right. The flat's big enough for three of us. I worked out that at 900 square feet between the two of us, we have about as much space each each as the six of us had during the years of maximum occupancy in our 2,700 square foot residence in Garland. However, not so easy to get away in this little space unless I want to go outside. Hubs and I can speak to each other from our respective offices here, but in America we can't do that. Too far flung. We went to Selfridges. It's a large department store in London to hobnob it with the wealthy contingent. We were with my dancer daughter, so spent a lot of time wandering among the shoes, particularly the ones with red soles. Do you know about them? Designed by Christian Louboutin. He has six houses around the world, including a palace, a castle and a boathouse on the Nile. 
We first heard about them at the Titanic Requiem I was gabbing on about the other week. We saw a girl wearing a pair and were told by Patty Boyd that they cost hundreds of pounds and no one is allowed to copycat them, which of course they do. I found sites on the same Google search page as the real McCoy for as little as £20. I wouldn't know the difference. The genuine Louboutin shoes go from 300 to 2500 pounds. Little ballerina flats are 455 to 925 pounds, and even the canvas loafers are 635 pounds. His trademark are stilettos to make women's legs as long as possible, and of course the platforms are back, not that I remember them, and the signature red soles. They were exquisite, I have to admit. After all those shoes, we popped down to the food hall and sampled Godiva and lint chocolates and yummy sourdough and other fantastic breads. No trademark issues on those. Well, let's detour now to my book excerpt from chapter 22 entitled The Outside Draws In, where I'm still in the world of Target and my children are seeking jobs that pay real money. I'm so glad I homeschool. I never would have been able to start college and do all these neat experiments if it wasn't for the fact I homeschooled and had the flexibility to do so. Plus, I love the looks on professors' faces when they discover I never went to school. This was Simon talking, ten to the dozen, so thrilled to be a full-time student at the community college where he was utterly engrossed in science classes because he knew if he wanted to work with animals, he had to get a B.S., degree because he couldn't BS his way into a salary paying job with wildlife anymore. He was fully vested in the self-imposed scheme and faced it bravely, overcoming all the obstacles. His favourite place to study was still the kitchen, the hub of the house with its welcome interruptions. Somehow he maintained a super grade point average. A lot of his success felt his natural abilities. He'd been endowed with two conflicting psyches, One was the academic profile, which I must say he would have fallen back on had he not also been gifted with the fun-loving second psyche, which was greatly enhanced by his charm and good looks with an athletic ability that verged on the professional. He managed to blend the two and, hey presto, found his way into A&M's Wildlife and Fisheries Department as a junior and a well-rounded young man with brains and brawn, artistry and husbandry and down-to-earth etherealism. He, and those with whom he came in contact with, recognised that homeschool had worked well for him. Later in his career, he would be interviewed by eager journalists, wanting to show him off not only as a shining example of the young generation, but as a homeschooler. But for now, he was the star of his sister's lives, and away at college two and a half days a week, finishing his Associate of Science at the local college. In its twelfth year, Wildflower Academy was beginning to feel the tug of the outside world. I know that sounds like a real basement statement, but there was no denying the fact that with one student away at four-year college and the second now full-time at the local community college, we had no choice but to change how the schedule looked from day to day. I refused to completely throw away the piece of paper that organised my life and kept us from having to be in several places at the same time, but I did have to manipulate it so we could make the most of hours and occasionally complete days when the girls were home alone with me. Something else was going on too, and my ordered little routine of having the children naturally following in each other's footsteps came to an abrupt halt with the child who started this whole homeschooling lark when she failed a test at five. It was quite clear to me that my oldest daughter at 15 going on 16 
was nowhere near ready to apply for college. While I was all right with that, some of my friends were not. And just because she's a girl doesn't mean she doesn't have the right to a fine education like her brothers, said my more professional acquaintances, who thought all women should have the college experience. I agreed in a way, but remember I came from a background where women were offered career opportunities in the caring, teaching, defending fields, which could easily and seamlessly be translated swiftly into wife and fierce mother responsibilities. I was growing up into liberalism, where women were concerned, but I still saw the main responsibility for a healthy family lay in faith in God and a good provider in a husband. Lots of the books my homeschooling friends with daughters were reading were about beautiful motherhood and supportive and obedient wifedom. So I was able to liberally sprinkle some of those conservative teachings into my very independent foundation and rustle up a compromise that allowed me not to fret too much over whether my daughter or even daughters were academically drawn to college. It isn't for everyone, I rejoined. Paris, from the outset, was a lover of children and special needs children in particular. She was an action person who volunteered at an achievement centre close to home from the age of 13 and immediately saw that she could be a blessing with or without a degree. As time allowed, with her other volunteer work and the demands Latin and math were making on her free hours, she branched into child advocacy centres and explored social work through conversations with a teacher friend of mine. Paris found she was really happy not so much analysing the reasons behind why a child behaved or performed in a particular manner, but how much love that child really needed to feel safe in his or her world, even for a short time under her care. Quite honestly, in my eyes, algebra and chemistry had very little to do with this gift my daughter was willing to give to anyone, child or adult, who asked for it. My youngest daughter wasn't thinking about college or her future yet. For the moment, she was happily ensconced in the present, with everything she loved within her grasp and the task of keeping homeschool firmly under her control so that her evenings were not in jeopardy, fell happily into her lap. Wildflower Academy adhered to its godly roots. These I would not relinquish, although it was an attractive temptation and would have made life flow easier during the day without the blessed interruptions of regular prayer. I wasn't called to that. Obedience is not always easy, but its rewards are peaceful, and I found once again that I had time for everything when I put God in his rightful place in my life. And the children accepted my example, and we grew stronger in our desires to live how we then should. We started earlier than ever in the mornings, mainly because Simon's first college class was at 8 o'clock in the morning, so we had to leave by at least 7.15. And God and I were sticklers for family morning prayers. These we did together before he left. I had the opportunity to cover a wonderful book called Reasonable Faith, The Scientific Case for Christianity by Jay Weil, which I hoped would sow some very important seeds in my budding scientist's mind as he prepared to enter a field reputed to harbour professors who had long since lost their belief in creation and its creator. I was warned by my priest that science was the downfall of many a Christian. He also thought rock and roll was too. So I was determined to prove him wrong and provide my son with tools that would help him soar above the sceptics and hang on to his faith. As I said, Simon's skills at college were a combination of innate common sense and his good looks and charm. The professors loved him, and he them, and he used this mutual admiration to advantage. He never shied away from quoting scripture or Christian scientists like J. Weil in his essays and papers. 
We gave away many of the wild books during his years at college when the professors, respectful of Simon's inquiring mind, asked for a copy of this resource he used for his reports. So the importance of family prayer once more brought the truth to me that God created us to support one another and to pray and study the Bible together in order to shore up our spiritual scaffold and evangelize. Well, my guest this week is Jane Dolby. Um, she's the lady that my daughter lives with in Leon C, and she has a um, very interesting story to share with us in the next segment. But before we go to that, I have to go on a break, and I will be back in just a few moments after this. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. My guest this week is Jane Dolby, the lovely host mum my youngest daughter lives with in Leon C in Essex, England. Jane and I first met just over a year ago when Malia and I were hunting for digs. I knew instinctively that my little girl would be all right with her. And she <laughs> greeted us from her kitchen as we stood in her open doorway with a, come in and have a cup of tea. We knew we were home. Jane has four children and is a work-at-home mum with a public relations business called Delicious PR. Her background is in music and she started off wanting to perform, but she soon discovered that she was better at promoting music than making it. She now helps emerging artists develop their profiles. One year on, and Jane has graciously agreed to join me for another cup of tea and natter this afternoon, when we're going to be talking about the dramatic turn her life took three years ago. Welcome, Jane. How are you this afternoon? Hello, Vivian. It, I'm feeling good, and um, thank you for having me on your show. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. What's, is it raining there? We have to talk a little bit about the weather. because It's always England. raining in England. You know that. <laughs> I know. I mean, it hasn't stopped for two days. We've had s solid rain and we're yeah. officially in a drought. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get that. Neither do I. <laughs> Just not enough rain, I suppose, to huge yet. All right, Jane. Tell us, what led up to your meeting, The Boy Next Door? Oh, I love the name of the show that you, you know, it's a really, really, it's really captured my imagination. And he was the boy next door, my lovely husband. Yeah. Um 
I had a series, I was a single mum, I'd been a single mum for quite a long time with my oldest boys and um, living in um, somewhere I thought was fairly secure mm-hmm. uh, but my, I, I'd, I'd lived in this little house for um, about five or six years and my landlord had some sort of financial issues and he, ha- he had to sell the house, it wasn't anybody's fault but of course as a, as a lone mum on um, a very, very low income um, I was really struggling to find anywhere else to live because uh, I, I didn't have very much money for a deposit. Um, I didn't have a guarantor. Um, you have to show your, you know, financial and bank details to letting agents to prove that you can cover the rent. And you know, my, <laughs> there was sort of snow blindness on my blanks on my bank statements. Um, so I was very, very worried about it. I had nobody really who could help me. Um, so I phoned, just went through the yellow pages and started phoning estate agents and sort of trying to throw myself on their mercy, really, um, and uh, didn't get very far. And eventually um, misdialed. Um, I missed. I phoned the wrong number and got through to somebody called Les Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, oh, no, no, we're not, um, we're not a letting agent. I'm sorry. And I said, oh, well... Uh, so I don't suppose you've got a little cottage for a mum and a couple of kids then, have you? Thank you for your time. And he said, no, no, hold on. I have got a cottage. Oh, really? <laughs> it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. I had I, sort of become a Christian a few years before, and it was these kind of things kept happening to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just mind-blowing. Anyway, it turned out that this chap... Um, he was move. He was um, moving into a larger house with his family and letting out his own. Um, and it turned out that his son, from this misdialed number, his son actually sat next to my eldest son in the same school. It oh, was really? incredible, oh. just incredible. Mm-hmm. And this this misdialed number also ended up being um, Colin's best man when we got married. Really? Um, so anyway, yes, a couple of weeks later, we moved into this little house. Um, and there was a lovely family next door um, called the Dolbys, an old fishing family, and they befriended the boys and Ollie in particular. Um, and Ollie used to say he was going to play with Colin. And I thought I thought Colin was a little boy. Oh. He wasn't. He was the fisherman's son uh-huh. of um, the elderly man who lived next door. Um, and he had this great big workshop uh, where he used to sort of maintain his boats and do all sorts of exciting things that I didn't do. Um, and Ollie used to come back and say, uh, uh, oh, um, Colin thinks you're really pretty. He'd really like to take you on a date. And I felt very, very uncomfortable about this. I thought, you know, this this man shouldn't be saying these things to this child. It's really inappropriate and it's not on. And I felt very, very uncomfortable. Um, and I thought, I've really got to tackle this. But he was ever so sweet and I didn't want to offend him and, and hurt his feelings if he had got feelings for me. Mm-hmm. But I was also... I didn't want to encourage anything. Yeah. And I certainly didn't want my um, little boy being sort of used as some sort of emotional messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried as sensitively as possible when I saw Colin to say to him, you know, look, Ollie's told me how you feel about me and I'm terribly flattered, but I'm just not interested in a relationship. And of course, he sort of threw back his head and roared with laughter and said, 
What a cheat. Your, your son's been telling me for weeks that you want me to take you out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's all, your innocent little boys playing yeah, matchmaker. <laughs> yeah, he did. He really, really did. That's a true story. Uh-huh. And, um, so, and that's how it all started. You know, Colin started to sort of back off because I'd made it very, you know, made my announcement about not wanting a relationship. Mm-hmm. So he started sort of backing off. And I realized, um, as you often do with these things, you don't realize what you've got to do. You don't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. But I realized I missed him terribly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's how it all started with the boy next door. Yeah, well, it, it, it really is a plus that at least one of your children anyway um, liked him enough yes. to think that he'd be good for you. you know? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've always been very care- you know careful. Although I was on on my on my own with the with the children, uh, I'd never wanted to be sort of one of these mothers that has a series of uncles over the toast of marmalade. So yeah, yeah, I've always been very very careful. The boys, in fact, I think I only ever had one sort of boyfriend mm-hmm. during that time, and, and and I never introduced them to to the kids yeah. uh you've got to be very very sure i think before you bring somebody into your into your children's lives yes, yes. so that was the boy next door and how long was it before you you know sort of tied the knot and settled down and had your oh, about two years yes, yes. Yeah. and then uh, and then florence and and elliot came along so mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. nice story i think well yes that that is absolutely perfect and that really is the boy next door, you know, is right there under your nose. Yeah. yeah. And, um, Jane, you, I've, I've read something of yours, and um, you talk about, because we were, we were talking a little bit about God's bigger plan. You know, yes. And obviously, um, I'm sure God's hand was there because of your misdialing, and I often think the same thing, actually, when we found mm. you, because I had made appointments to see three other people in Leon C, and on the day that I got got there, I just couldn't get in touch with anybody except you. You were the only one I could I could get in contact with. That and was thought, really yeah, strange, I wasn't know, it? I know. And so, and you and you write something that's absolutely beautiful um, about life being the back of a tapestry where you only see the knots, frays and castings off. You don't see that beautiful picture on the front. You just mm. see all the stuff on the back. Mm. And, um, mm. That is so beautiful. Mm. And, um, you know, your ups and downs in your life, you go, what? What are you doing, God? And then suddenly, if you're lucky enough to see it pan out into something beautiful, then you can understand it more. I do like the tapestry sort of analogy because um, I think even with um, the castings off and the frayed edges and the and the knots and all the colours sort of jingling together, I do think sometimes when you when you take a step back and you look at it, you can get a little glimpse of what the front might be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of what it is with God. I do I do think that He sees the front. Mm-hmm. He create you know, and we do only see the back, and um, we've just got to have faith that the that the picture that we that's on the front is one that we will eventually understand and see and enjoy. Yeah, that we're a part of. Yes. Right. Yes. So, can you tell us a little bit about um, what happened on that day in November two thousand and eight? Your husband's a fisherman. Yes. Not yeah. a difficult job. It I is mean, a very difficult job. Not an easy job. No, and it's the um, uh, it's the most dangerous job in the UK 
officially the most dangerous job. One in one in twenty fishermen lose their lives at work. Yeah. Um, I'm sure a lot of people, if they uh, if they thought there was a one in twenty chance that they would die at work, they just change their jobs. Well, you they know? would. But didn't um, they run in the family though? Didn't you say? You did. Yeah, four hundred years. Um, so it was a long family tradition of fishing, and it's quite a. You know, it's a biblical job, isn't it? You know, it's a beautiful job, um, but a very, very hard one. Um, with the um, with the crazy government um, fish quota rules, it's getting harder every day. So increasingly, fishermen have to take risks that they perhaps would not normally take. Um, they have to go out in weather that they might normally not go out in, go further than they norm- not normally would, um, just to make ends meet. Um, and did he fish on his own? Was he a lone fisher? Yeah, yeah, he was. His dad used to go with him, but his dad, you know, he's quite elderly, and um, it was quite difficult for him. It was a you know big boat for him to sort of climb into, and I think the, I think that Colin, you know, they both. It was very sad the day that he realised he couldn't go to sea anymore, but yes. uh, it would have been dangerous, I think, for him to continue. But but actually, on the day that Colin went to work. Uh, it was a really good day. It was very, very calm. Um, fishermen are really good at predicting the weather. And in the in the night, in the early morning, Colin would always go in the garden and sort of look at what direction the trees were blowing in and uh, predict what the weather was going to be like. And the sea was flat, calm. It was quiet. Um, and I was actually ordering Christmas presents from the internet on on that day. And then, sort of out of nowhere, um, this. Sort of, it was it was a freak storm. There's no other word for it. A freak storm just absolutely sprung up from nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, when you're on land and something like that happens, what do you think? Well, I didn't think anything of it. Okay. That's the weird thing. I mean, I I've I've actually written about this because you would just I don't know. You would I would have imagined that I would have in in that sort of situation in the in the situation preceding a, a a tragedy, that maybe you'd feel something, you'd get an instinct, but I just had no no feeling at all. Colin was a really skilled, experienced seaman, mm-hmm. um, and um, I just thought, oh, you know, poor old thing, he's going to be soaked and freezing yeah. when he gets in. Yeah. Um, he'd been out in weather like that before, yeah. um, but we we now. We, we now think that the engine may have failed on his boat, mm. uh, meaning his boat had turned sideways against the waves. Mm. Uh, a, a boat can manage waves if it's, um, you know, approaches them straight on, yeah. point, points through them. But we think that the engine failed and Colin may, the boat may have drifted on its side and that's why it went over. Mm. Um, but it did go over yeah. and um, Colin drowned. Yeah. Um, and although the wreckage was recovered uh, within the, a week, we we didn't have Colin's body for nearly a year. Really, mm. really, that's um, devastating for you. How did you how how did you find out? Did somebody call you from the fisherman's mission? How how did you find out? Actually, it was Colin's sister. Oh. Um, He, he was supposed to have come home mm. to take the children to a birthday party. I didn't drive at the time. Mm. Um, and he'd gone out quite early, so he was due back quite early, and he, he said he was going to take them. 
and he hadn't back hadn't come back and I remember feeling a bit irritated that I was going to have to walk in this terrible weather mm. um but it was so bad when I tried to open the door I nearly was lifted off my feet and you know you know the size of me that's a strong wind mm. um it was so bad I thought I've got to get a taxi uh but while I was in the taxi and this rain was uh you know pouring down um Colin's sister telephoned and she sounded sort of in a state of near hysteria she was saying he's not back he's not back his boat's gone missing he's and I just I just I said I calm down you know you can never set your watch by a fisherman because the tides you can predict them a bit but like you know not it's not a science um and I was used to I was used to him being a bit late and I was saying calm down Wendy stop worrying what I can't understand you what are you saying his boat's not back his boat's not back and I said well he's just he's just late and she said no you don't understand his boat's not back the coast guards are out and I just knew at that moment it wasn't the you know, he. It wasn't that his boat wasn't on the mooring, or he. It was gone. It's gone. Yeah. Well, Jane, uh, with that, we have to go on a really short break, but we'll be okay. back in ninety seconds. Okay. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Why do I feel so lousy? Why are my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. The author of the book, Help My Body is Killing Me, solving the connections of autoimmune disease to thyroid problems, fibromyalgia, depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better. To make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. All right, well, we're back from our break, and I left Jane talking to her sister-in-law, Wendy, who was trying to explain to Jane, no, Colin hadn't just missed the tide. His boat just hadn't not come home. Um, The Coast Guard were out and something more serious was going on. Jane, what happened next? Well, I was en route to um, a party for the children, one of their school friends, and... um, it probably sounds crazy, but I, I took I took them to the party mm-hmm. because the the weather was appalling. Um, I knew that uh, I knew that the um, the coast guards, you know, we would have to wait for news, and I just kept sort of I'm, I'm quite I'm quite good at thinking about what outcome do I want from this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I knew that I could make phone calls from my mobile while the children were at the party. And actually, knowing what I expected to have to tell them later, I just wanted them to have a nice afternoon. Yes, yes. I wanted them to see their friends and have a nice party. Mm-hmm. I knew what was I knew what was going to come, you know. Yeah. Um, so I took them to the party. I was on, really was on autopilot. Um, I stood outside in the rain with a coat over my head and made loads of frantic phone calls. I, I told my friend, um, Laura, whose little girl, whose party it was, I said, there's a problem with Colin's boat, it's missing. I said, please don't think I'm rude if I don't come in and help, but I have to make some calls. But I kind of played it down a bit. Um, yeah, went outside, spent the whole two hours while they were in there having fun, making these calls. It was definitely the right decision to take them. Mm-hmm. Um and then I phoned my my brother who raced over and collected the children and we kind of made it into a, a big adventure that they were going to have a sleepover on a school night at their cousins. And they were saying, well, why are we doing this? Why? Um, see, I, want, I, I was all set to tell them, but the police had said, well, there's nothing to tell yet. You know, we don't know. He might be found. Yeah. Um, so all I could say was dad's dad's boat's sort of missing at the moment, but I couldn't tell them anything else, and um, I wasn't really in a much of a state to to have them at home. I had the police and the fisherman's mission. Uh, my sister-in-law, my friend Angie, uh, they were they all sort of arrived. It's all a bit of a blur, really. Yeah. My brother took the kids off mm-hmm. after this party and. It was the most sort of surreal, surreal experience. And so they found, eventually, after um, several days, they found the boat? Yeah. Yes. Um, The water was very deep and it was November and it was freezing cold. Mm -hmm. um, And the boat was, the boat had sunk completely. I think it took nearly a week to arrange for the support authorities to salvage the wreckage well there was nothing to salvage actually it was in it was in bits and we thought we'd find colin's body in the wheelhouse mm-hmm. or somewhere in the boat yeah but it, it wasn't there yeah. and they sent dive divers down three days running mm-hmm. um but they couldn't find him and so what is what is the policy then um <clears throat> when when would he be declared lost at sea dead um you know how um, long did that take well in england you have to be Missing for seven years before oh you can get a death certificate. Oh, goodness. Yeah, and, and during that, you're completely, um, the next of kin are completely without any way to um, move forward uh, with authorities or banks or anything. Mm. Uh, there's just no provision at all. So, I mean, so Colin had a mobile phone contract uh, for, I don't know, £30 a month and I couldn't cancel that, but I had no money to pay for it because they wouldn't allow me to cancel it because a contract could only be cancelled by the um, by the person who held it, yes. which was Colin. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, he was dead and they wouldn't believe me. Yeah. Um, we had a bank loan and a credit card, which he used to make the repayments on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
obviously he wasn't here to make the repayments. There was no income. Everything stopped. We lived on a very meagre income, sort of sailed close to the wind financially anyway, so there wasn't any buffer. Uh, I had nothing to make these repayments, so I was just getting these awful calls from the banks and the loan company, uh, all, you know, day and night, really. They, didn't, yeah. they, they called up to sort of 10 o'clock at night. And so um, you were told at one point by one of these authorities <coughs> that you called that I know you claim your husband's dead, but without evidence, he could be living on the Bahamas. Yes. Now, that would be something that would be furthest from my mind. Yeah. Yes. And to, that, to say was, to somebody who, what, just weeks before, you know, has heard that something this, awful has happened. This was about six. This was about six months afterwards. Um, a a bank. Her, they phoned me perhaps um, eleven or twelve times a day, and this call actually was on my what would have been my um, wedding anniversary on May the fourth, mm. um, and this guy phoned and I said, I keep telling you, my husband's dead. And he said, well, I know you claim your husband's dead, Mrs. Dolby, but without any evidence, he could be on the Bahamas, couldn't he? Mm. And I just I just felt so crushed. Mm. I just didn't know, you know, what to say. Um, so how, what happened finally? You talk about um, uh, you met somebody at a support group. Who, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Helped yeah. you. So what yeah. finally kind of yes. broke this dreadful yeah. chain of events? Yes, it was a, a woman that I met on a on a on a support site, um, and um, she uh, told me about something called the reasonable evidence test, which is uh, something that um, uh, people use to claim life insurance um, and to get um, interim death certificates for victims of the tsunami when there wasn't a body. Yeah. And the ins- we we had a small amount of life insurance, not very much, a small amount. It's very difficult to get life insurance for a fisherman. It's such a dangerous job. Um, but we had a small amount, and boy, did I need it. Um, so the insurance company had told me time and time again that I couldn't claim, you know, unless I could produce a death certificate, they couldn't help me. It wasn't even worth sending me an application form. This widow told me about the reasonable, te- reasonable evidence test. So um, it was actually relatively easy once I knew about that to put it all together because I knew about cold water shock you know um, I knew that that set in in four minutes he wouldn't be able to have survived in that water for longer than that um, the radar showed that there was evidence there was no boats in the vicinity um, the um, Met office had recorded a freak gust of wind uh, at the same time that his boat had disappeared from the radar. So there was loads of evidence. Yeah. Once I started looking at it, it was quite easy. It was like doing a jigsaw. Yeah. Um, and once I had this, and I phoned up this insurance company again, I said I wanted to make a claim, and the person said, well, Mrs. Dolby, you know, we keep telling you, without a death certificate, we can't progress this. And I said, well, I'd like to make a claim using the um, reasonable evidence test. And she said, oh, I'll put the application form in the post. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you... She knew about it, yeah. They must have known. Yes, of course they did. Course they they did. must have known. And I, and I was phoning, I was in tears, I was saying I had nothing. Oh, can you and believe so, it? <laughs> so during this time, um, you had help. And I know that a lot of times when a, a crisis like this happens, people rally Mm. Um, really quickly but then it peters off you know after six really months does. and yeah. a year and, yeah. and that stuff peters off so what did you find uh, what surprised you um, most about people's reaction to what had happened to you that is a really interesting question 
because I had to process quite a lot of anger and I had to do quite a lot of forgiving um, because I felt so, so hurt and let down by people, some people that I thought were my friends mm-hmm. um, who didn't, it's true what they say, you know, people really do cross the road. It's like you've got some sort of plague. Mm. Now I'm through that anger. I totally understand why people feel terrified of approaching you. They're just overwhelmed. What do you say to somebody? Mm. They're frightened of feeling inadequate. They, they're worried about putting their foot in it. They assume that you've got this inner circle of friends that are probably taking mm. care of all your emotional needs. Um, so, Jane, what do you say? I mean... I, you know, meet you and know that you've just suffered a devastating loss. I mean, would it matter if I put my foot in it? I mean, what would you, what would you No, advise? it doesn't. It, it, I don't think it does. Um, somebody said, one, one thing somebody said to me, um, which resonated so much authenticity, I think that's the thing. It's not what you say. This, this woman who I didn't really know came, came up to me in the playground I just had a week off school and I was trying to get things back to normal, you know, um, for her to feel more normal. So I took her back to school and stood in the playground, which was pretty horrendous because I knew everyone was staring at me yeah. and I just looked like a fright, you know, no makeup and last thing on my mind. And this woman came up to me, one of the other mums who I didn't know that well, and put her arms around me and she said, I don't know what to say to you. But I just want to tell you that I really care. And, um, of course, I burst into tears. But it was just so heartfelt and authentic and genuine and uh, really, really reached me. What about just being there, just having somebody there, whether Mm. you say anything or not? Mm. Just know that there's somebody there. Mm. There isn't anything you can say. You can't make anything better. No. Um, No. And it's our it's our instinct really to want to try and find solutions for things. I, I'm a great solution finder, you know. And sometimes when if people, my friends tell me problems and things, I I want to say, oh, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? And uh, and I, I learned something from my friend Vicky who said to me once, "Would you stop telling me what to do? I just want you to listen to me." Mm. And actually, you know, I had to take that on the chin because it sometimes it's just. Somebody yeah. just wants to offload. They don't want an answer. They just want you to hear them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how are the children coping during this? How, how did you How did you deal with that? We have um, a few minutes before our next break. So, okay. Well, it's a strange thing dealing with grief. You know, dealing with bereavement. Um, it's, a, it's a funny old beast. Um, how you imagine the experience is very different to the reality and actually certainly in a situation like ours where you're partially anaesthetized with shock and I had no idea how shock operated before this Uh, you know I thought it was something it was like a feeling that you had you felt shocked a bit like a sort of more powerful version of surprised but it's it's not that at all shock is literally being emotionally detached so you do not feel anything um, and it's nature's way, God's way of making you survive. So that if you if you felt the impact, you'd go down, you'd never get up again. Yeah. But gradually, that shock wears off. Yeah. And that is around, that's why bereavement counselling, you know, most bereavement counsellors won't even take you on until you're about a year into your journey. Yeah. Um, for that reason, uh, because 
the counselling is only effective once you've, you're actually feeling the pain and you don't feel the pain at first. You do feel it. You feel you feel some of it, but you don't feel the full impact. And I reckon at about a year, that's when it really hits you. And that was definitely when I was at my darkest. And that's when I um, used to visit this um, widow's uh, bereaved support site online as well. And I was so grateful that so many people said, oh, yeah, you know, it's called the 12-month low. It's normal. Mm. It gets worse before it gets better. Mm. But, of course, then your help is all backed off because people think, oh, it's a year or year down the line. Yeah. Um, she's, she's doing all right. She's yeah. moved on. But it's not how it is. It's a slow process. Well, Jane, we've got to go on another break. So um, we'll go off for about 90 seconds and we'll be back. So okay. don't go far. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, we're back from our break, and I'm talking to Jane Dolby, who has been telling us her story of loss and how she's managed to continue being a mother and a businesswoman against all odds, as we heard. And um, Jane, finally, this is what I would like to ask you. You sound so positive at the moment. And I know that the journey you have traveled has not been an easy one. You've learned a lot about grief and friendships and a lot about how to um, help your children. And um, I want to know, what are you doing now, three years later? What is what is all of this experience um done for you and what kind of person do you think you are you know now you really do ask some fantastic questions um it's very interesting you ask about what sort of person i I am now because i was only saying to somebody the other day i feel like i'm a, a different version of myself i don't think i can ever go back to being who i was and i do miss that person um that but that's all kind of tied up with the grieving process you know you mm. you don't just lose your your when you lose somebody you love you don't just lose the person you lose a lot of the easy sort of casual expectations that you that you kind of had for yourself and your and your life so i i am a slightly different version of myself mm. um 
I've tried very hard throughout this to focus on the outcomes. And for me, the children have uh, been the primary motivator for getting up every day and putting um, one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I've just started getting involved with a project that is, uh, I think, is quite exciting. The, um, there's a charity called the Fisherman's Mission who look after um, fishermen and their families in times of hardship. And I just cannot tell you uh, how how wonderful they are they're a christian charity um and they don't have you know a lot of money and i've i've received and received and received from them not just sort of financially but emotionally spiritually i've received from them in a lot of ways they they never count the cost um of of giving um and i've recently thought well it would be really very good to do something back for them it's time to give something back i'm not in a position where i can donate money but i do have a background in music and i thought well perhaps i can you know put a choir together a bit like the military wives that's been very successful in england um, and i think it's coming to america actually oh, really? yeah um the military wives that's been hugely successful i thought well i'll, I'll maybe i'll approach some of the local fishermen and ask if their wives and girlfriends want to do a a choir, and we'll call it the Fishwives. That's a good name. <laughs> yeah, and I thought maybe we could sing Eternal Father, you know, that's a traditional nautical song, mm-hmm. um, and record it, and the Fisherman's Mission can have the um, proceeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put a little notice on Facebook uh, yesterday, and the whole thing's gone a bit mad, um, because what what was intended to be a kind of low-key local thing has uh, my phone hasn't stopped ringing. Um, I've been doing sort of interviews and um, been press interest and radio interest and interest from newspapers in other from areas where there are fishing fleets in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, God's hand's got to be on it. This could be very exciting today, but tomorrow's fish and chip wrappers. Yeah. Um, and um, so it, it, perhaps nothing will come of it, but. If God's hands on it and it, and it happens, yeah. I'm hoping to involve the fishing wives and girlfriends from the fishing communities from all around England yeah. um, to record record a, a charity single um, and give the money back to the Fisherman's Mission. It's a nice thing to be able to throw myself into now. So, so the Fisherman's Mission is a national um, yes. organisation. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and you're just you're planning on doing the one song, so the single, not a whole CD. No, because uh, we've got to do- get people to donate studio time. You yeah. see, I think it might be taking advantage of people's good nature to say, you know, you can you can possibly ask someone for a day's studio time, yeah. um, or you know, do it over a couple of evenings or something in their downtime. But to to actually ask them for to donate time to do a whole album is uh, it it might be taking advantage unless there's some sort of generous benefactor that wants to fund it all. I suppose. That's right. <laughs> who knows? Who knows who, who a lot of these people that you're reaching out to may know, you know? Yeah. So the fish miller, that sounds, that sounds exciting. We'll be keeping our eyes open for that. And I look Thank forward you. to hearing the fishwives choir. <laughs> and Jane, uh, sadly, we've come to the end of our time. I've been chatting to Jane Dolby, who experienced every fishwife's worst nightmare when her husband was drowned at sea while he was working. Jane told us how she turned to God to help us through help her through the last three years and how she'll continue to lean on her, him in the coming years. She told us about strangers and friends who helped her to turn her life around. She talked about the 
cruel bureaucracy surrounding the claims she fought to get, and we discussed what she's doing now to support the group who helped her the most, the Fisherman's Mission. Join her on Facebook to keep up to date on what she's doing with the Fishwives Choir and learn more about this courageous woman who's changed people's lives while her own was being radically transformed. Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm blessed to have met you and wish you every success with your projects in the future. Thank you, Vivian. Well, that blessing's mutual, I think. Well, thank you. God be with you always. And you have a great weekend by the sea. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was quite a story my friend Jane just told, and what a strong woman she's become. She was telling me that life insurance isn't available for this high-risk job, but that they had a small one, which she desperately needed, but which was impossible to access without a death certificate, which in turn was impossible to issue without a body. What a vicious circle, and where's the compassion in all of this? The compassion lay elsewhere, in the fisherman's mission. Bless them and you, Jane. On a completely different note, but slightly connected, because I gave Jane's daughter all the books in the Twilight series, which she inhaled and now is watching the films when she can, we went to see The Hunger Games while my daughter was on holiday. I've read all three books, and Malia has listened to them on her iPhone, and as she was halfway through the second one, she wondered to me on Skype one evening, why am I reading about children killing children? Good observation there, and I'd wondered that myself. However... The lead character has strong moral values and becomes a heroine not only for her family, but for all of the districts under the evil grip of the central government who organise these annual games. The film was good and Katniss looked like a normal girl. Not too thin, not too pretty, not too perfect. My filmmaker's son asked me if I'd liked it and I said yes. And he questioned me further about the filming and I said that no, I hadn't liked the cinematography at all, but thought it was some new way of filming that the younger generation liked. Apparently not, and the studio, Lionsgate, had brought in another cinematographer to try to correct the botched filming. There were times when it felt as though the action was being videoed by me on my home camera. I just focused on the distance when the shots became jerky and disorienting, which worked. I was glad it wasn't just me getting old and out of touch. I asked Malia if she thought Jane's daughter would enjoy the book since she'd read Twilight, and I'm always willing to buy a good read for a reader, and she said, no, she's not allowed. Curiously, though, my nephew at 13 has the books in his Catholic school library. Maybe the Catholics were burned badly by banning certain books when I was a young teen at school. Their comprehensive list made for a wonderful resource for books I just had to read. And I wasn't going to talk about the weather, but of course I have to, because we're in a drought across the nation. There's been a hosepipe ban in place for three weeks now, and it is threatening to last for the rest of the year. Today is day four of non-stop, gentle, persistent, soaking rain, and our flats have put away the hose to prevent temptation. The Thames Water Utilities and others across the UK have given notice to all of their customers that the potable water they supply must not run through a hosepipe for the following purposes. Watering a garden, cleaning a private motor vehicle, watering plants on domestic or other non-commercial premises, cleaning a private leisure boat, filling or maintaining a domestic swimming or paddling pool. However, use of handheld containers filled directly from a tap is allowed to fill the swimming pool or paddling pool. This brings up interesting visions. Filling or maintaining a domestic pond, excluding fish ponds, filling or maintaining an ornamental fountain, 
cleaning walls or windows of domestic premises, cleaning paths, patios or other artificial outdoor surfaces. A garden includes all of the following. A park, gardens open to the public, a lawn, a grass verge, an area of grass used for sport or recreation, an allotment garden and any other green space. There are exemptions and in a nutshell, if you are disabled and unable to carry water for watering, you can use a hose. If it's necessary for health and safety reasons, you can use a hose. For anything commercial, you can use a hose. A drip or trickle irrigation watering system, as long as it's on a timer and not handheld, with no possibility of surface runoff, is permissible. Next week, I'll take a look at some of the loopholes. In the meantime, enjoy your showers. I told my youngest while she was here on holiday that we would wait until a sunny day and then go and take photographs of all the pubs along our high street. She couldn't understand why we had to wait for the sun, but I didn't want to take pictures on a gloomy day. But with all the clouds and rain, our window of opportunity was drawing in on us, so we finally went out late one afternoon, taking advantage of a brief break in the clouds and reckoning we'd only be an hour. We decided to turn it into a pub crawl, because that's English. And since it was a Friday, we sometimes visit our local for a half pint or two before fish and chips anyway. We donned scarves and coats, and Hubs agreed to come as an escort. Fine gentleman that he is. We started off at the station, which is at the top of the high street, where there are two pubs, both Irish, neither of which have been that we've been in. Patrick's and O'Neill's, both of them always busy whenever we walk past on our way home from Beckenham Junction. We agreed to share a half pint of cider between the three of us and sit outside. Under the umbrellas, there are electric heaters. No wonder this pub's always teeming. They make it comfortable to sit out in all weathers to have a smoke. Not that we were smoking. The next pub we entered was the George Inn, which we photographed and decided to share a half a Guinness there on the way back up the high street. The coach and horses, hidden away down a side street, marked by a bright green and quaint fountain on the corner. We shared another cider here on the bench outside. The next two, close to the bottom of the street, were a little bit rough, so we didn't linger. We just snapped. We had to take a photo of the public loos, planted with large beds of colourful pansies and tulips, very attractive public conveniences. Then we wended our way down another back lane and came upon our last two pubs, the Oak Hill, it was getting a little dark now, and then down to the right to our local, the Jolly Woodman, where we drank our wine next to the smallest house in town and looked at some close-fitting rooftops before going home for dinner. That's eight pubs within a mile, and we beat the rain. And I've dried up, and I have to go. Planning a fun weekend with my older son and youngest daughter, so I'd better get my walking shoes on and my wallet out. I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. So without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children, who are the result of that belief. I miss you two today in Texas. The hard-working staff at Toganet Radio, my guest Jane Dolby, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Anne in Lindale. Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, Pam, Charlotte, and many others who are part of my growing audience. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace.
Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginet. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.